very, very happy to be able to introduce Ellie Harrison to you. She's a... Uh, I'm always tempted to call you a Scottish artist, but we talked about this yesterday, and you are a British artist, even though you're based in Glasgow, right? Well, I was born in England, and my mum's family are Welsh, and now I live in Scotland, so I'm a bit of a, a mongrel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've kind of known Ellie for a long time, but we've only met sort of twice. Yeah. Once before she came here, which and only a year ago, but... Uh, right after I finished uh, college in London, I was lucky enough that, that Ellie invited me to do a show. And I didn't really know your work before then. But then you know how it weirdly people sort of stick in your mind. And I think I've gotten your invitations, you've gotten mine. And like the other way around, so you sort of stay in each other's peripheral vision. Once in a while, I've invited you to something. And We're both good at writing newsletters. Yeah, yes, I think that's maybe what's <laughs> kept us in touch. But anyway, I've always been really, really interested in what you were up to. And so when I had the chance to invite somebody to come as a resident artist, I was like, let's bring Ellie in. It's the obvious choice. Aww. Yeah. Thanks. So that's, that's my intro. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so some of you, well, I met some of you yesterday which was really, really nice. Um, I've been hanging around since the last Monday, the 3rd of November, and I'm going to be here until the 12th of December, which will be six weeks in total, and I think that's your last day this term, is it? 12th of no, December? It finishes after Christmas. But okay. Last, uh, it's, it's my last day, <laughs> so there may be some sort of celebration, <laughs> or, or the opposite, I might, be, I might be chaining myself to my desk and refusing to leave. Um, so, my little room is just up there on the left, you've probably walked past it lots of times, it has this lovely sign on the front uh, door, which was made by Oscar, before... And, and, and Dina, thank you very much before I, before I even arrived. <coughs> so this was a very warm welcome to get here and to discover this on the door. Um, so this name, the Department for Business and Innovation, Business Innovation and Skills, was something that I came up with when Christopher was pressurising me to say, what are you going to do <laughs> during your residency? Um, and I was swimming one morning while I was worrying about this email that I had to write to Christopher, um, thinking, and then suddenly this popped into my head. And this is the name of one of the UK government departments, the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. And I suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to steal that. Um, because these three things, business, innovation and skills, are kind of things that I've been thinking about over the last year or so in my work. Um, and I thought this would be quite a nice frame for my thinking during the residency. But particularly, I suppose, um, because I'm interested in the relationship between these three things within the art school context. Because as well as being an artist and doing lots of other things, which I'm going to show you today, um, I also teach in the art college now in Dundee. So Dundee is on the east coast of Scotland. I live um, on the west coast of Scotland, so I do a lot of travelling on the train to and fro, like your professors do here. Um, and I, I've been teaching there for two years. Um, and last year I actually did... Uh, some teacher training which was quite useful but it's also like um, 
compulsory um, if you get a job in a, in, a, in a university to go through this training programme. But I started to think about, um, I guess, what I see as the important things of an art school education. And it really just boiled down to two things. That is developing the ability to think critically um, about the world around you, but also about your own practice and your own lives within, within that world. And, and, and the other thing is the ability to develop as many practical skills as you can. So to really use the facilities that are available at, at an art school to push yourself to, to develop um, new skills. So this idea of skills is something that, that kept cropping up. Um, so I'm planning to talk about those, um, these themes in a lot more detail during the workshop that I do. It's a three-day workshop, which I hope some of you <laughs> will have signed up for. Um, it's happening, not, this, not next week, the week after. Um, and I, I guess in the workshop, I also want to sort of explore some of the things that came out of yesterday's discussion um, in relation to uh, the professionalisation of artists, the relationship, I suppose, between innovation, this word here, um, and conceptual art, what does it mean to generate ideas, um, and how do you go about doing that process? Looking at how the business world is, is looking to artists to kind of steal some of, the, some of our um, innovative uh, qualities, but also looking at the relationship between innovation and motivation, um, and also mental health, and like, maybe this desire for the new or the desire to keep innovating is something that actually keeps us sane and keeps us happy. Um, and then, of course, also this, this idea of like the necessity or the need to, to acquire practical skills and technological skills, this idea of wanting to stay ahead of the game, which relates to competition within business. Um, and also... The more skills we have, the more skills we have, the more ability we have to adapt to change in a world that's perhaps ch changing uh, faster than a lot of us would like. So, setting up the department, um, there was all of those ideas behind it, but there were lots of other ideas that I hope to play around with. Um, I mentioned yesterday in the discussion this book, Dark Matter, which I've been reading since I've been in the department. And the chapter that I quoted from yesterday is about mobstitutions. So it's about the, um, the, I guess, more recent phenomenon of artists setting up their own sort of fake institutions so that they can kind of hide behind... Um, the, the charade of a bigger organisation. So this chapter, which some of you uh, will have read, hopefully, um, looks at how this is becoming a more, more frequently occurring phenomenon. Um, but, and it's also a probably a result of, of, of artists using kind of these dominant forms of power that are seen in the, the neoliberal world, the big corporation or, or other big um, organisational structures to kind of hide behind. Um, because they, in doing so, they're able to kind of use, steal this sort of power um, and to do things that wouldn't be possible 
uh, for just one individual to do. So to be taken more seriously, I suppose, because people think that you're a bigger organisation than you actually are. And this is something that's kind of referred to as the Wizard of Oz effect, which I really <laughs> like. Like this idea that, I mean, if you've all seen the film The Wizard of Oz at the end, where, where you see that this whole myth that was built up is just this tiny little man hiding behind this, this huge um, screen with this big thing to amplify his voice so he sounds a lot scarier than he actually is. So um, the, the Moxstitution, which, which the, the Department of Business Innovation Schools is, can enable you to do, um, I guess, things that wouldn't be possible for you to achieve on your own, whether those are good things or bad things, and to kind of shirk responsibility for them yourself because you can blame it on the department. <laughs> so I've already begun to kind of refer to the department as this thing that's bigger than me and this thing that's almost controlling me and telling me what to do and um, on which I can, I can blame um, if things go wrong. <laughs> so um, this, like I said yesterday, this is my first proper artist residency um, and it's definitely the first time that I've uh, done a residency or spent any um, length of time in a foreign country, a foreign country, <laughs> oh, a lovely country um, and I guess that uh, I've never, because, because I, I kind of um, see all the work that I've produ been producing over the last 10 years or so as very specific responses to the British culture that I grew up in, I guess I've often worried about whether or not that would translate to um, other cultures. I've never, never, never really felt the necessity to go and sell my wares overseas. Um, and I guess, so I, I, I'm very grateful for this opportunity um, to come over here and I guess see what I've been doing in a, in a slightly different, um, from a slightly new perspective and also to share it with you and see if it, it, it does make any sense. Um, so this doesn't mean that I'm not aware that the globalised art world exists. I am very conscious that things happen um, uh, all over the world um, in a massive network in the art world as much as they do in, in other areas um, of global capitalism. Um, but I guess setting up my department uh, for me was a kind of way of exploring what it means for an artist from one culture to be parachuted into another culture and looking at, um, I guess, the, the imperialist, obviously Britain has quite a horrific imperial past um, that it, it has to deal with, but this idea of kind of like, that still exists, this idea of soft power um, in setting up kind of cultural institutions or offshoots of certain states within other countries in order to like impose um, your culture or your values or your, your ideas. On, on, another on another culture. So I guess I'm trying to do that with my department as well. Um, but ultimately, what I wanted to do in stealing this from the UK government was to kind of draw attention to and to undermine what actually goes on 
back in London in this department because this is the department, the Department for Business Innovation and Skills, which actually controls all of the further and higher education um, within the UK, um, well, within England. Um, so all of the art schools are controlled by this department, which is quite terrifying. Um, but at the same time, all of business and business regulation is also controlled by this department. So it is quite scary the way it's all been lumped together like this. And what's happened over the last um, five years since the Conservative coalition that we've got in power at the moment is that all of... Um, uh, yeah, uh, the the education system is different in England and Scotland, which is one reason why I migrated to Scotland as a political refugee to escape from England. Um, but what's happened in England over the last five years is that the coalition has cut um, all funding for arts education, basically, in order to prioritise what they call the STEM subject, so S-T-E-M, which is Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths. So that is the only subjects that get um, government funding now. Um, and it, if you live in England, it costs £9,000 a year to, to go to university and study to be an artist. So it's a three-year course, you'd end up with um, 20 seven thousand pounds worth of debt at the end of it which is terrific and i i'd find it difficult to to recommend any young person to start their life with twenty seven um, thousand pounds worth of debt regardless of the the amazing things that they would get from from being at art school so i guess the idea of the moxstitution <laughs> comes a lot uh, from Actually, it refers to him here as one of the first, the first people to kind of experiment with this idea is Marcel Broudhers, who's a Dutch artist. And he set up quite a, few, quite a lot of um, mockstitutions, I think, in the, in the 60s and 70s. And, and they were always absurd entities. And they always kind of mimicked existing mm. institutions in the real world, but through their absurdity, um, kind of undermined the missions or, 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 or the, the undermined the activities of the real institutions that they were mocking. So um, the other thing I've discovered uh, since I've been artist in residence is, is that you get a lot more time to think about these sorts of things, which is really, really nice. Um, and as I, as I was saying last week, I really was just thinking and reading and, and processing, I guess, all of the stuff that I'd been doing before I got here that I hadn't had time to sort of process. Um, and... A residency like this that I'm doing, which doesn't have an exhibition outcome as such, really puts the spotlight on the process of working. So I guess that's what's going on in the office at the moment, in the department at the moment, um, is me really reflecting on not only processing ideas and thinking about things, but reflecting on that process as well. Um, I guess becoming much more aware of my own labour conditions within the department. I have actually been 
self-exploiting quite a lot, saying I've been in here seven days a week. But um, the discussion on procrastination yesterday, which I think most of you are at, was really, really helpful for me in relation to kind of thinking about labour conditions um, more. Um, and uh, I went back to my <laughs> studio after the discussion and I dug out the rest of the to-do list because I thought it was hilarious. Um, so this was my to-do list for Tuesday and you can see what the main thing I was meant to do is prepare this talk <laughs> for you. Um, and I didn't do it, I just did everything else so that at the end of Tuesday uh, what was left was the one thing that I hadn't done. And I realised actually, uh, after hearing Christina's presentation, that, I mean, that really helped me to understand why I had put this off so much. And it actually, coming to the discussion, I realised that the fear, the real fear that I had, was a fear of this this perfect performance that I'm doing right now. Um, and and, but it was actually about making an impression and like this idea of being an outsider and somebody's come into this environment and how can I not embarrass myself or how can I do the best that I possibly can. So um, actually coming to the discussion, introducing myself and meeting you yesterday helped me overcome the fear. So I then went promptly back to the department <laughs> and got on with preparing the talk. <laughs> and it is very thoroughly prepared. You'll be very pleased to know. Um, but it does, <laughs> it does say here, um, prepare talks, plural, because I'm actually doing two talks. So the, this talk right now, but also the talk um, next Thursday, uh, which next Thursday evening at Brant's 13, um, and that's open to the public, but it's also open to you. So I had another fear that if you guys all came to this one, you wouldn't come to the next one, because you'd think, oh, I've heard all of that, I'm not going to show up. So I spent meticulous attention <laughs> making sure that they were both going to be very, very, very different and that they would both give you kind of different perspectives or different experiences of my work. So I was really thinking about the two different contexts where I'm going to do the talk. So one is within the art school um, and one is within the museum. So um, to members of the public, but hopefully to you as well. Um, and so I was thinking about the first talk, the talk today, being much more about the process of making artwork, um, the things that I've been thinking about since I've been in, in, in the department, all of the messy stuff that you don't necessarily get to see um, when you go and see something in a gallery, and that the talk next Thursday is going to be much more about the outcomes of that process. So the discrete artworks or other projects that kind of come out of this messy process of thinking. So what it all boils down to, I suppose, how you boil down all of this mess and make it into a concise statement. So today is about process. Um, and I'm going to show you some finished artworks that I've made over the last 10 years, but they're more sort of artworks, more process-based artworks, I suppose, less of these kind of um, 
definite exhibits or spectacles that I've been making um, more recently over the last few years. So this talk is, 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 is going to be, I guess, all of that behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, all of the wizard, all of the going behind and seeing the little wizard, <laughs> and how how embarrassing and awkward he actually is. Um, so, uh, but this, I guess, this talk for me is, is 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 the more interesting one because it's where you see the kind of clash and the overlap between life and art. Um, and this, this, this is where it's most visible, and this is kind of the thing that I suppose I'm really interested in, um, in all of what I do. So I've already started to expose some of the workings behind the department. Um, this is the actual Department of Business Innovation and Skills website. Um, you can have a look at that if you want. Uh, and this is the Facebook event for this um, residency. So on here I started to just put photographs and post stuff out, things, little things that I've been thinking about um, since I've been in the department. This was actually what I did on Tuesday morning rather than starting to write my talks, which tidy the entire department because it was a terrible, terrible mess. And to put things in little ordered piles. So I thought I should take a, po uh, a photograph of that. But please do follow this event if you're on Facebook. Um, and and, and uh, I'll be posting up other stuff that I'm doing um, while I'm here on this page. Um, I don't know if Nick is here, actually. Um, Nick, who was at the discussion yesterday, um, because he was talking... I mean, I have a... I have a is he here? No, he's not here. He is not it's here. here okay. <laughs> um, but he was talking about this... Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook, as I'm sure most of you do. Um, and... Not just Facebook, but all social media. And some of the reasons for this love-hate relationship will become clear with some of the stuff that I'm going to show you um, over the course of, of this talk. But one of the things I was really interested in what Nick said, because I think I've been on Facebook since 2007. And that whole time I've been trying to negotiate like a way that I'm comfortable with using it. And... I went up to having like something like 2,500 friends because I was just saying yes to everybody and then trying to whittle that. I mean, this took up, not, this took up months of my life was organising my social media. Um, uh, uh, and, and then it got, got I realised that it was like every, every, um, every, um, that it was actually better to have less friends because it became less stressful experience when you logged on. So I started to delete people and deleting people takes a long time. And every, literally every new year I would have a clear out, a social media clear out. And it just got totally ridiculous to the point where last uh, January, my New Year's resolution, I'm a big thing on New Year's resolutions. Uh, I, I, I love New Year's resolutions. Um, but what I decided to do was to delete my personal profile altogether and in doing that, what I do have is um, an artist profile, which is facebook.com slash blatant self-promotion. <laughs> if you want to check it out. Um, but what doing this, it's, I don't have a personal profile at all. I just have this. And it made me realise, because I use Facebook a lot for a lot of the projects that I do. And now I know that when I'm on it, it is just work. 
because it is just this process of self-promotion. So I'm just an active producer of content. I don't consume anything because when I log into my like shadow profile, which I have to have in order to be an administrator, I realise it says zero friends. And, it's, and when you go in the chat bit, it's like nobody is available right now. <laughs> and it, it's there's no distractions. And I can kind of look at people, like, it depends on what their privacy settings are, like, and find out a little bit more about them. But you can't interact with them at all. You, you, can, you can just kind of see them like a shadow in the dark. So this, like, all of these things, all of these kind of... Uh, anxieties, I, be- I guess, about social media um, come from previous works that I've done um, and uh, that I'll talk about a little later. So I guess I wanted to frame the stuff I'm showing you today in terms of this idea of the personal is political. Um, this is a text. Has anybody read this text? It's a quite famous text from, I think, late 60s, early 70s by Carol Hneesh. And it's um, looking at the, the, the women's liberation movement and was, was a key text in really defining how the women's liberation movement went about spreading, I suppose, across the world. And the idea in the personal is political is this... is. You can see there's a quote here um, from the text. To admit to problems in my own life is to be deemed weak. The argument of the text is that, and it's really kind of how women's liberation um, movement uh, functioned, was through these kind of consciousness-raising groups where women got together and for the first time they confessed about the struggles and the negative experiences that they were having in their own lives like and it was through sharing those most intimate or most embarrassing experiences that they might have in their domestic lives with their husbands or their children um, that they realized that everybody else was experiencing these things too and that actually it wasn't just them or it wasn't just their fault um, so the argument is in the personal is political is that through disclosing this information, um, saying all this embarrassing stuff that you wish other people didn't know, then you realise that everybody else has got the got got the same problems, and that you realise that there's bigger systemic causes of those problems, and that actually it's not just going about oh I'm a, it's not just about saying oh, I'm such a failure, why can't I deal with this? It's actually saying, well, the system's fucked up and we should work together to try to change it. So, um, this this kind of feeds into um, what I see as one of the core interests of, of, of my practice at the moment, And that is this relationship between the macro and the micro. So when I talk about the macro, I'm thinking about things that happen sort of on a national or an international level, and the micro being what we experience in our everyday lives. So I'm particularly interested in, I guess, how um, these rational decisions 
or so-called rational decisions that are made by economists or politicians um, on the macro level, so on a national or international level, how those things are actually experienced um, in a highly, often highly irrational way by everyday people just trying to live their lives. Um, so I'm interested in, I guess, exposing some of the absurd consequences of what can be seen as meticulously planned policies. Um, something that's referred to in economics as the law of unintended consequences. This idea that you can, you can plan something down to perfection, but when you put humans in the mix, and humans are naturally chaotic um, creatures, that all sorts of things that you hadn't planned for will happen. Um, but I'm also interested, I guess, in the, the, the opposite of this, and, and that's how the micro influences the macro. Um, and, and specifically within non-planned systems, so non-planned economic systems like capitalism, I guess how the system that we end up with um, could be seen as a manifestation of all of our combined individual actions. Um, so the collective results of the individual decisions that we make um, in our everyday lives on a daily basis. So with something like capitalism, how we are as individuals all kind of equally um, implicated in the system and as a result, we all have some sort of shared responsibility for its continued existence. So I've spent a lot of time um, over, uh, over the last 14 years or so since I've been, since I would call myself as being an artist, which is uh, when I first finished my degree, just thinking about some of those questions that we were thinking about yesterday in terms of the function of art. What can art do to try to address some of these problems with the world? And this is one of the... I put this up outside the department, or one of my employees put this up outside the department um, <laughs> earlier in the week. It's a quote from this book, This Is Not Art, um, by Alana Janelik. Um, and you can go and take a peek at this, because it's, it's on... It's on, a, it's on a, it's outside, so you can see it. Um, but it really kind of, for me, summarises a lot of the things that I've been thinking about in relation to what art can do. It says, art is not political action. Art is not education. Art does not exist to make society stronger or the world a better place. Art disrupts and resists the comfortable the stiflingly familiar and the status quo, or it serves to deaden a disenfranchised society further. So I love this idea as kind of art as a disruption to these systems, or at least drawing attention to these systems that may go unnoticed. So I guess one I've been thinking about um, about art or about my practice specifically, as having this kind of dual role, I suppose. And this comes from a quote from um, Tony Olive Nielsen, actually, because she came to do a talk. She's a Danish curator. Has she done any teaching here? 
det er jo en kulturisk aktion. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So she came to do a talk in Glasgow and I went to hear her speak. And one of the things she said was like the need for artists to bring things to the surface, so to kind of make things visible, to expose them, but then to do something about them. And I guess this is something that I see as being a huge paradox in my role as an artist and maybe in, in that of others is that the more you kind of research and find out about the world, um, which I think you need to do in order to make like um, engaging and valuable artworks, the more you try, the more you find out about the world, the more you kind of feel compelled, or I felt compelled to try to do something to actually try to resolve a lot of the problems that you encounter. So. It's for that reason that, um, I guess, over the last five years or so, what I've been doing has bled into direct activism. And I have set up and run a number of political campaigns, which I continue to do at the moment. And like um, Alana Genelit says, they're not art. They're definitely not art. They're real political campaigns. And I'm going to talk about them more next week. Um, but that they are... My role in running them is kind of important element of what I see as my wider practice. So my practice takes lots of different forms. Um, it takes the form of these political campaigns, um, but also internet-based projects, which I'm going to show you today, these mock institutions which keep cropping up, um, actions and performances in the public realm, installations and exhibitions in, in more conventional gallery settings. So I'm going to show you a few examples of these things. But all of the activity, that whether it's activism or it's, it's artworks or things that I do in an art context, to me is a response to the threat posed by climate change or to the way in which climate change is likely or is, is more than likely going to change our lives over the next century. And climate change for me is the ultimate unintended consequence of capitalism. It was the one thing that the economists didn't bank on. So my activity aims to... I suppose, undermine or to draw attention to and to undermine what I see as the kind of persistent myth, um, the persistent myth of infinite growth on a finite planet, which is summed up so beautifully by this quote um, from Kenneth Boulding. But this idea that it's absurd to even think that we can go on infinitely expanding on a finite planet, but yet all of our mainstream political parties still have this myth as central to their policies. Uh, all of our um, economic systems, a majority of our economic systems, especially in the West, hold this idea of infinite economic growth as, 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 um, as their guiding uh, force. So... One of the ways in which I started to look at this, I guess going back to this idea of the personal being political um, earlier this year, 
was to try to look at my own behaviour to be able to understand why this myth is so persistent and why it's so compulsive. So I did um, this progress report, I guess looking at the idea of progress and what it means to progress and whether that means to continually get better and to continually improve. And to think about sustainability, I suppose, and like if you continue if you continue growing and you continue getting better, you know, it can't carry on like that. Not on on a on 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 the level of one individual. Like it's all going to end in tears. It's all going to end in a meltdown. So I thought I'd do the graph instead of melting down. But hopefully you can read this. This is based on real data. Uh, which I've collected over the last decade, um, based on the number of kilometres I've swum each year compared to the number of emails that I've sent. Um, So it shows since 2002 a year-on-year increase. I have continually uh, got better, 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 better (laughs) every single year. Um, I've become more productive and I've, and I've swam a hell of a lot more. Um, it's actually interesting, this, this little, this point here, 2011, this, this was a real high point for my swimming. <laughs> I didn't have a job, I, I, I was, <laughs> I had a lot, I didn't actually have a lot more time. I wor- I, I'm going to talk a bit more about this later, but I was, I was doing too much work. But it was almost like I wanted to add onto the ex- that work. Like, I did this swimathon challenge as well. I just wanted to add that on, you know, like, just, just push myself a little bit further. But then in 2012, like, um, I got a job at the university. So my emails <laughs> shot through the roof, um, but my swimming suffered as a result. So I guess this progress report, like, when I did it, it was... Um, it was just a little experiment, a bit of a joke, but it's become it's become really central, I suppose, to kind of how I understand the relationship between individual actions and the global system. Um, and it relates, in its kind of obsessive, like, uh, self-reflective way, relates to a lot of my earlier work, um, the work that I started to do when I was a student and um, for a few years after graduating. So I'm going to show you a little bit of that now. So it all started in um, 2001 when I was in my final year of my fine art course and I did a project called Eat 22 where I took a picture of everything that I ate for a year. And this is just, I think this is 60 odd of the 1,640 photographs that I took over the course of that year. Um, And alongside the photographs, I was starting to record data about all of the images. So I was recording the exact date, time, location, and any other information about each of those images. So this is a huge spreadsheet um, that... amassed over the course of of that year. Um, And when I finished Eat 22, I went on to do lots more of these data collecting projects, as I called them. Um, In 2003, I did a project called the Daily Quantification Records, where 
in a very lo-fi way, I um, recorded numerical data about lots of different elements of my everyday life um, and also my bodily state. So I had a few data collecting devices. I wore a pedometer, which told me how many steps I'd walked every day, and I weighed myself every morning, and I, I, um, I collected, yeah, 365 of these little record sheets. But what I was really interested in, I suppose, in a rather um, didactic and clunky way, was looking at the relationship between these everyday experiences and the artworks that we produce. So I wanted to, I decided to just make a direct link. So every month I created a series of monthly averages out of all of this data. And I produced a system for inputting the numbers and outputting um, the specifications for a monthly sculpture. So this is the system <laughs> described on, on this poster. Um, and this became my degree show when I was um, doing my postgraduate course at Goldsmiths back in 2003. So these are the first six sculptures, um, January to June. And actually this interest in, you know, like the law of unintended consequences starts to emerge at this point because I realised once I defined the system meticulously that actually... I could manipulate the system because all I had to do was lose weight or drink more alcohol or drink less alcohol because these are the things that I defined. And then I could change the shape of the sculpture. So, like, it wasn't out of my control. It was in my control. And I just had to jump through these kind of loopholes to try to get there. So, because I was really stressed and I was really worried about making these last two sculptures, I went on a diet. And because I, I lost weight, the sculptures were smaller, so it didn't take so long to make. So I became really interested <laughs> in the observation. You know, these observations almost on how I was playing the system became as important as, uh, as, the, as the sculptures themselves, more important, I think, in, in the long run. So um, another one of these data collecting projects was probably the, the longest one that I did was three years they often went over the course of a year. This one was three years, and it started in 2006. And I set myself the challenge, like most of these things start as a challenge, to um, record what I was thinking about every time I had a hot drink. So it's called Tea Blog. Um, and I decided to do this, um, well, it ended up being three years. And it was all online. So it was about making these things public. It was about making your thoughts public. And at the end of 2005, when I started to think about this, this is, I'm still bitter about this. I'll share it with you. Like, I, I had this idea that I, I, I was really interested in how you could instantaneously like, publish material about your own life on the internet. And I thought, well, what we need is to be able to like text message. I can be drinking a tea, and I'm going to text message what I'm thinking about, and it's going to get published online. <laughs> and so I wrote this proposal to try to get a software programmer to help me do this, and, and I didn't get the funding, so I did it in a really lo-fi way, and I kept going, and I kept going, and kept going. But over the process of keeping going on it, um, 
I guess I started to realise some of the negative side effects of being so like um, self-absorbed. Um, and other technologies started to develop, like Twitter and Facebook, of course, which would enable other people to take on similarly um, self-absorbed practices and to this idea of instantaneous ego broadcasting, which is what I call it, send them out into the world so that other people could follow them. So T-Blog ended um, on the 31st of December 2008. I'm just going to show you uh, one other project that um, I actually continue to this day um, and I kind of keep, keep it going on the sly because I've been very outspoken <laughs> about how the negative consequences of, of this sort of data collecting activity um, but I keep this one going on the sly and I've been working on it quite a lot since I've been here actually so the idea of this transatlantic challenge, I don't know if you can read this, but it says since the 22nd of April 2002, so I've been doing it for, for 12 and a half years, I've been recording the distance, which is why I have all the data about swimming, um, recording the distance that I swim um, in my local pool. Um, and these are all the swims. <laughs> since 2002 I mean I like looking back at these because it reminds me where I was you know where I was living like I was living in London and I was living in Nottingham and then eventually I moved to Scotland and then I did a lot of swimming in Glasgow and then these are punctuated by little trips to other places um and then ah <laughs> I did a lot of swimming since I got here. I think it's because um, the department imposed these regulations on me and okay. I had to oblige. Um, but I, I've, I, I've been going every morning. I also think it's because this is a particularly difficult time of year, like autumn, don't you think? When it starts to get darker and darker and darker. And I just think if I didn't do this, I would probably just like languish in bed all day. So this is one of my tools, tri tricks for, for um, getting out of bed and, 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 and trying to get on with the day. Uh, so this thing, like, it's like an app. I mean, it's very lo-fi because I made it 12 and a half years ago and it's made in Flash, which is quickly becoming um, obsolete. But it is like a sort of app that is now much more accessible on smartphones. I don't have a smartphone because I think they're evil but um this is a kind of forerunner to that idea and i'm kind of really interested in like the app as a sort of super ego the app as somebody or like a big other the app there's some app as somebody who who monitors your behavior and self-polices you and keeps you in check so that's what this does and i think that's why i have been so productive with my swimming is because what it does is it calculates, this is my total distance, so I swam 2,097.75 kilometres, <laughs> and then it works out my average velocity, and then and based on that, it works out how old I'll be by the time I swam the distance across the Atlantic, which is 5,400 kilometres. So this, like, 
linking it into actually like my own life in the future like I'll be 68 if I carry on at this rate and actually if I don't carry on this rate then I'll get older so I probably won't make it you know I'll probably be dead before I've made it so like this whole thing that it's built into like my own lifespan and mortality makes it quite compelling to keep going so <laughs> it is a it is a sort of emotional uh, motivational tool which is why I've kept it going because um, and like I say, I'm doing it kind of on the sly because in 2006, I decided to publicly quit data collecting. So I decided to come out and say, this is not healthy. Um, this is not a healthy way of, 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 of existing. I'm going to stop it. Um, and not only am I going to stop it, but I'm going to share all of the negative like impacts of this behavior with my fellow human beings to warn them from following in my footsteps so the confessions um were a series of like reflections on on, on ways in which I, I i noticed this impacting on my mental health so it was horrible feeling so trapped like i couldn't do anything without generating or accumulating data um, I felt I was spending hours each week employed as the administrator for my own life because it takes a lot of time to process all this information. Hopping from one project to the next allowed me to maintain a sense of structure and routine um, and I was able to relinquish all control to the logic of data collecting. So I went from doing one of these things to the next to the next to the next because I almost like that, that offered a framework for my life. So I, I, I'm going to leave this book in the library because I bought this copy for you. To, um, so I'll put it in there as of today. Uh, as but a all, as a warning, all of the all of the 16 projects that I did um, data collecting are all kind of outlined in there. Finally, this is kind of quite an important one. I felt I was so focused on the minutiae of my everyday life that I became totally blinkered to everything else going on in the world around mm. me. So inside the book, um, what I did is I gave these confessions to a writer who took on the role of a therapist um, who kind of analysed the symptoms um, as though they were um, the result of, well, uh, as though they were the result of greater um, systemic uh, problems. So... These are two of the reports. This confession, I don't know if you can read this, it's another kind of important one. Um, I got sick of making work about me, me, me. I was paranoid about being seen as self-absorbed or completely narcissistic, even if it was true. So I've tried to overcome that. It is difficult um, as an artist. And this, this one, this one says web 2.0 which is what we used to call it in those days it's just you know it's just the internet now but web 2.0 has spawned has spawned a whole new generation of data collectors there is such a ridiculous abundance of boring information about other people's lives <laughs> on the internet i felt obliged to stop adding to it so this one about quantity versus quality I guess is really important and from from that 
kind of standpoint comes my sort of love-hate relationship with social media. So I have now run this, what I call an active Twitter boycott. Um, and that is that I, I um, have a Twitter account. And this I find really scary. Like if you hover over here, actually tells you the exact time that I joined Twitter, which is 2.23am on the 2nd of July 2008. So that's when my Twitter boycott began. Um, so every time I log it just, just, it just says that, and I, I love that. Like, and, and occasionally I panic that I'll accidentally tweet. Like, <laughs> and I did actually once accidentally tweet. It was awful. Because, you know, like, I just clicked on something and before I knew it, it sort of retweeted something. But then I discovered that I could delete it and that nobody ever noticed. So that, but I mean, it was, it was like a real panic because it was like, this is like, a, how long ago is that? Six years I've been doing that. Like, and the thought of just accidentally tweeting in my sleep or something really scares me. Um, so <laughs> from that point onwards, from the publishing of, Confessions of a Recovered Data Collector onwards. For, the f for, for a few years at least, I guess, I was really interested in this idea of changing. You know, I've got to get better. I can't do that crappy old data collecting artwork anymore. I've got to do something better, more meaningful. So that process of, like, this desire to change oneself became, like... The thing that I was making work about. So this is this kind of spoof. I did this in 2006, which is called the Artist Training Programme. And it was about thinking, well, what skills do I need to get to become a better artist? Well, I think I need to like learn more about the world. Um, so I borrowed these two gentlemen's, um, not only their portraits but I also borrowed their ideas one is Paul McKenna who's a who's a neuro-linguistic programmer like a hypnosis expert and he's written this book called Instant Confidence and the other one's Dr Kawashima the inventor of brain training so I built up this program that involved building your confidence and then also like I was um, prescribing developing like your knowledge of um well, political engagement, and then you do your brain training alongside it so that you could retain all of this information and you'd be able to access it if you really needed to, and that you would then also uh, go on a programme of cultural enrichment so that you would know more about what other artists were doing and be able to work out how your work could fit alongside um, what else is happening. So this kind of like hardcore um, schedule, seven days a week, that you could follow and I didn't actually follow it you know I was kind of doing it as a sort of spoof of self-help programs um but I did sort of do my own training program um on the slide and I've put this in because we were talking about it last night but one of the things that I started to do relates to a uh, discussion yesterday as well is I guess I had a huge anxiety about not being good enough or being seen as stupid or being stupid or being ignorant and especially at art school when people say like they mention philosophers or they mention like people that you should know about and you don't know about and you're like well who the fuck's that why does everybody keep talking about them like so why <laughs> one thing i <laughs> one thing i decided to do was to learn 
an entire chronology of philosophy and critical theory. So the way I decided to learn it was to make a wall chart. And I was talking about leaving a copy of this yes. wall chart here if you're, if you're interested in it. But we both agreed that it's more important for you to make your own wall charts if you really want to learn it. But on this, <laughs> on this wall chart was basically every single name that I ever heard mentioned and thought, who the hell is that? I wrote it down and then I looked it up and then I started to put it together in a chronology. And actually the chronology was just the most useful thing because it's just about saying, oh, well, this is where Gramsci comes. And this is like, who's before? So obviously he's been influenced by them or he's critiquing them or like, and it's really important to kind of understand how they, how they kind of fit into this sort of history of thought. Um, and also, I suppose, if you look at it and you see who's missing, I mean, this is really based on the canon. It was the things that I was hearing. It, it was like every book that I read, every word, name that I saw. It was, the stuff, it was the mainstream stuff, I suppose. So if, if, you, if you wanted to look at the wall chart itself in a, in a slightly more critical way, um, you could see, it would be interesting to see who's missing. Um, and there are inevitably a hell of a lot more men on there than there are women. Um, but I, this is another thing that I don't really class as an artwork. It was just an exercise that I did that became very obsessive. But I guess during this time of like think, reflecting on like uh, what it means to sort of self-improvement, I suppose, and how can I be a better artist, I started to, to I guess, look to like collaborative people who, who had a collaborative partner to work with as somebody said yesterday, the grass is always green on the other side, like thinking, well, actually, I wouldn't be self, so self-absorbed if I was working as part of a collaborative pair. That's what I want. I want to find like, my perfect partner that I can work with um, and that we can have discussions and we can, you know, it's, it's not just about self-policing all the time or self-discipline. It would be about us and about the sort of work that we want to make. So... I built this website to advertise myself um, and I guess like to try to find a perfect partner to work with um, and there's testimony there's a testimonial from my mum there um, but actually like in doing this and like obsessively detailing the kind of person that I was looking for like my perfect partner I kind of was making it clear that this person doesn't exist, you know, like, even this person is just a clone of me, you know, or I'm going to be looking for the rest of my life to try to find them. So, like, this, it was helpful to do this because I, at that time, made a list of all, I made a list of the top 100 artists that I was interested in, and this was all before I went on to do my master's. So, like, all of this was kind of helping me to sort of really work out, um, what sort of art I wanted to make, I suppose, in the future. Um, but, yeah, I guess this idea of like reflecting on um, the pressure to innovate is something that I think the, the um, Department of Business Innovation and Skills is, is, is going to be looking at. And it's a pressure that exists within capitalism, um, that's why you see so many ridiculous products that we really don't need, like on the shelves, because of this pressure that exists 
for companies to keep reinventing the wheel. But it's also pressure that exists within the art world and exists with art students. You know, what's your next idea? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you working on? Like, like yeah, but that was last year. Like, what are you doing now? Like, what's next? Like, and I guess one of the big questions I have is, is, um, you know, is, is that a result of the system that we think like that and that we think term, in terms of short-term, what's next, what's next, what's next? Or is that actually a result of, you know, pre-capitalism, I suppose? You know, what makes us happy as human beings? Like, we want new experiences and we, we want to meet new people and we love having new ideas because that is what gives us pleasure. So I guess these are things that I'm going to hopefully think about more in the, in the workshop. Um, but... This piece, I suppose, like, for me, reflected a lot on another paradox, I see, of being an artist. Like, it's about loneliness, really. Even though I did have a partner at this time, and I don't know what he thought about this, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's advertising myself. <laughs> like, I... I mean, um, but... But, um, but I... I am... Um, uh, there was this kind of like inherent loneliness, you know, like feeling like I was being misunderstood or like that who could I, you know, who's really going to understand what I'm doing? Like, and I, I guess, um, what else are we going to show you next? Yeah, that is why it's this sort of paradox of between like wanting to be alone because it's when you're alone that you're able to think really deep think in a way that you can't when you're with other people. And maybe it's through that deep thinking that you can generate ideas and help to sort of to synthesize all of this mess of information that we get all of the time. But as an artist, you know, there's there's always this kind of desperation to try to share that with someone, to try to connect with other people out there. So I think that's like the desire to try to connect that has led me to do quite a lot of projects that involve other people and curating. Um, and I, I've actually only created one exhibition, which is the exhibition that Christopher was in. Um, and I'm going to leave this in the library as well, so you can have a look at it. But it was during my data collecting phase. So it was an exhibition of artists who collect, list, database, and, and absurdly analyse the data of everyday life. And really, it was a kind of lonely hearts club for these data-obsessed artists. It was a way of saying, well, it's not just me who's doing this. Like, there's other people, and actually it's okay. Like, and we can all come together. So it was kind of like... Um, a bit of a consciousness-raising group, I suppose. Um, but from this, you know, I continue to do a lot of projects that involve lots of people, networks of people. And I'll show, I'll show one example of those later on. This is the book, which I will leave in the library. But I want to go now to work that I made last year. And this is... It's a, it's a, this is an image um, from where it was screened uh, outside the BBC headquarters. Um, outside Manchester. No, no, it was actually screened on there. Um, there weren't very many people around. It was quite a grey day um, in, in, in November 2013. Um, but I'm going to show this. I guess it's a little film which I'm going to show because it. I don't think it's actually a very good artwork. But the project itself was called The Other Forecast. So 
it happened at the BBC headquarters, and what we did was invited um, me and my friend John O'Shea, who I worked with on this project. See, I, I did I did find somebody to work with. I do keep finding some people to work with. Actually, it's, it's it's when you don't go out looking, they come along. Um, uh, but so we collaborated on this, and we invited six artists to come and to make a sort of alternative weather forecast. So the other forecast, like an alternative vision vision of the future. Um, so mine was it's kind of a manifesto. Like it, I don't think it's a very good artwork, but I used it as an opportunity to outline what I see as all of these absurd consequences of capitalism, one after another after another, to say well, this is going on, this is going on, and this is going on. They're all potentially going to end in a crisis. But what happens if all of these crisis, crises kind of happen at the same time? I don't think anybody's really thinking about that. Um, so i just try and show you this little film now. So they're all on YouTube, all six of the other forecasts. Um, and we only had really one take to do it, which is why it's quite lo-fi. And we were doing it with an auto cue, so um, in front of a green screen. Hello, and welcome to your other forecast for the near future. I'll start with large areas of the West, where we've seen a few distinctive trends emerging and accelerating over the last 30 years. Rapid advancements in technology have resulted in a proliferation of smartphones and tablets over the last few years. One billion tablets were sold worldwide in 2012, and we're likely to see smartphone sales topping two billion by the end of this year. The sheer quantity of these devices is having a dramatic impact on the way our society functions. We're becoming dependent on screen-based technologies to perform even the most basic daily tasks. It's now hard for us to read a book, navigate with a map, keep in touch with our friends and family, or meet new people and organize a date without relying on these devices for assistance. The fragile threads which hold our society together are becoming increasingly dependent on an electricity supply, which, as you can see, has led to a sharp increase in our energy consumption up to the present day. But let's look on the bright side. We're actually very lucky that we have these tools to keep us connected as we continue on our trend towards universal alienation. <laughs> in large sections of the West, more and more people are living completely on their own. The number of single-person households has increased globally by 80% in the last 15 years, the highest number of singletons occurring in Sweden, Norway, Japan and in the UK, where 34% of homes now have only one person living in them. This allows us the illusion of success and independence in a world in which we are actually ever more dependent on each other and on a collective global system of production to fulfil even our most basic human needs. Which brings me on to my favourite subject of food. Across the West, we're seeing a build-up of high-sugar and high-fat foods. Because our primitive genetic code still encourages us to make the most of all available calories, we are witnessing frequent instances of excessive consumption. The average body weight of a person living in the West has increased over the last 30 years 
To the extent that one billion of us are now considered overweight and more than 600 million obese. This glut of food in Western areas is masking the fact that it is actually increasingly scarce resource, which is dependent on a delicate climate and vital seasonal variations in order to grow. So, to summarise, you can see we're over-consuming on lots of levels here. Electricity and gas usage are going up as we continue to heat our lonely, cramped, but still luxury apartments. And as we obsessively recharge our smartphones in order to keep alive the illusion of a meaningful social bond. <laughs> as a result, you can see our greenhouse gas emissions going up causing global temperatures to increase over the next century to levels at which human life will no longer be possible. Meanwhile, though, this frenzy of activity is causing large amounts of surplus value to rise up from all corners of the world, flowing freely across national borders and centralising and raining down into the hands of a small number of very special people. So, as you can see, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. So, now to our outlook for the next few years. As global temperatures continue to rise, it looks likely that we'll see an increase in the number of very lonely, very fat, and of course, very sweaty people. Although we may not see them at all, as I'm sure they'll remain indoors and won't ever end up on the telly. But let's look on the bright side once again. You'll be grateful for all those spare tyres that you've been hoarding up when electricity shortages halt all production and unseasonal weather cause our crops to fail. At least you'll have a fair bit of excess energy to keep you going through those lonely winter months. And of course, your beloved smartphone will make a lovely paperweight when you can no longer charge it up. But the best news of all is that you'll quickly learn that you never really needed it in the first place. Just turn off your telly, walk out the front door and go speak to your neighbours face to face. Together you can start relearning all those really vital skills that are required for your own social reproduction. <laughs> So that's all from me. Have a lovely life and good night. Yeah, so that's my other forecast. It's quite bleak, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's, 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 I think I had quite a bad year. Didn't I say 34 was a bad year last year? I, and, and it's interesting. I only made two artworks in that year, and they're both, they're both quite angry and quite dark. Um, I'll show you the next one next week, so that's a good reason <laughs> to come along. Um, so, like, I guess, I guess um, when you're faced with all of those, I mean, this is one of the problems with climate change. I think, and talking about climate change is it becomes such a, you know, it's such a huge challenge um, that it's easier to ignore it really than to begin to think about how you can deal with it. So um, I guess as well as one of my responses, as well as running these political campaigns, so actively trying to campaign for systemic change, I've also tried to um, live by example as well. So in 2010, I launched an environmental policy on my website. Um, and 
this was, I guess, a way of crystallising lots of the things that I was doing in my everyday life anyway to try to reduce my carbon footprint. Um, but in writing it all up and making it public, it kind of committed me to trying to stick to it. So it's, it's on my website. Um, and I guess my website itself, like, it's a kind of mock institution. It's a kind of, it's kind of like the homepage for this corporation of one. And in doing this, in producing a policy, like, I, I think I am one of the first um, individual um, visual artists to promote uh, environmental policy um, or to declare that they have an environmental policy. But I guess I'm really interested in, in looking at the um, difference between what it means for an individual to do this and what it means for a corporation. And of course, like the way that corporations are kind of um, set up, they're set up to, to mimic individuals, so they have the rights of individuals. So there's that kind of interesting relationship as well. So in this environmental policy, it starts with the, a heading on diet, and this is obviously something that you couldn't really have for a corporation because you couldn't really uh, discipline all of your employees to only eat a certain, certain foods. Um, but you can if you're just a corporation of one. So I became a vegan for my New Year's resolution in 2009. Um, and then this, because of finding out about the, the, um, the impact of the livestock industry on, on, on um, CO2 emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And it's actually more than all transportation in the world that is produced from farming livestock. So I thought I'd make this one of the, the central tenets of my environmental policy. Um, so I guess having this online, I think there's, there's lots of interesting things going on because it acts, you know, people can go to it and they can look at it and go, get ideas about um, what they um, might like to do uh, themselves or, or what ideas they might like to take on. But at the same time, it kind of acts as a promotional tool. In, like a corporation might um, use an environmental policy to get people to think, oh, they're actually the good guys. Like, it's kind of got that element to it as well, which I'm kind of interested in exploring. And then, of course, what kind of has happened since... I mean, this is four years ago that I put this online. It's actually... You know, I said, I, I, when, I, when I was invited over here, I, I said um, to Christopher, oh, I'll have to come on the train because otherwise I'll be breaching my environmental policy. And that's quite useful to be able to do because then you can get out of things that you don't really want to do. Um, but in this case, I did come here on the train um, and that took me four days. Um, but it's, it's, it's because... It didn't have to take four days, by the way. I, I stopped over on the way and had a nice time. Um, but uh, I'm going back on the plane and that is actually breaching my environmental policy because I already went to Berlin this summer to do an art project. So that was one flight. And in the policy, it says I'm allowed one flight a year. So I'm actually going to have one and a half. So over the course of um, the existence of the policy, I've been kind of monitoring all the occasions when I breached it. And they can loosely be categorised as I would only ever breach my environmental policy for love or money. Like, <laughs> 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 it, 
in this ca- oh glory yeah right coming here um so so like what i started to do and one thing i'd like to do in the department is to start to like uh, catalog these breaches in a bit more detail and like i guess going back to like the personal being political to like disclose like some of the seedy details as to what pushed me to to um to to breach um, my principles and my values. Um, so, one of the um, major breaches of my environmental policy um, was this piece that I made in 2011. And I'll just show you this and one other piece that I'll finish up with because I've probably been going on for a very long time, haven't I? Okay. You're on the schedule. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. As long as you're all hanging in there. Um, so, in because of promoting myself with my environmental credentials, I got invited to do this be artist in residence at this festival in London called Two Degrees, um, which was looking at um, artistic responses to climate change. So I agreed to do this, and I was very excited about it. Um, but the problem was, this was 2011. And remember the graph, this was like when I was working really, really, really hard and doing a swimathon. <laughs> and I basically I'd said yes to far too many things. Um, so I committed myself. And I, when I looked at my schedule, I realised that I was probably going to have to work every single day, like seven days a week, up until this festival in June, to be able to do this and all of the other things that I'd said I'd do. So as a result, I left it till like the week before the festival <laughs> to think oh shit I've got to do something for next week so then I suddenly like I was in the library and I think yesterday we were talking um about like whether you ever just sit there just to come up with ideas and I've had to do that quite a lot when you're put on the pressure put put put, put under pressure to do things like and I have techniques now for innovating like if I have to um, and this is one of those instances I sat in solitary confinement in the library thinking what the fuck am I going to do and I had this idea that I wanted to make these signs. They're like the sort of signs that you get outside a garage. I don't know if they have them over here, but you might get them like outside a garage promoting where you could get your tyres checked or something. Or you might get them outside a bureau to change. They say change on. Um, but these obviously say climate change. So they're advertisements. And they, they're, in this case, they're alongside a shopping street, which just so happens to be called Commercial Street in London, which is quite nice. Um, and they don't, they're not selling anything. The idea is that they're just to, to kind of like a disruption, like to puncture that, 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 that feeling of walking down the high street in your consumer mode, and just to puncture it and to kind of think about the, the, the bigger picture. So I made them and I got them produced because I only had a week, so I had to get these brand new signs and I had to get them produced and I had to get them shipped to London and the whole thing was a massive compromise because one of the things in my environmental policy is that if I'm ever making like a sculpture or an installation that I try to use secondhand um, found objects and I use eBay a lot to get tracked down things and had I had more time I'm, I probably could have tracked down you know used ones of these but because I only had a week um, I just had to get them made so when I got to the festival like I was spending two weeks there and it was also like because they're really heavy as well it was like the physical act of having to put them out on the street just 
I was really embarrassed by them as objects. Like, I thought, how can I like actually use the work itself to try to sort of resolve some of these big compromises or these big contradictions? So, what I decided to do was um, devise a project which would enable these signs because the festival is only two weeks as well it's like to make four like huge metal signs for two weeks um devise a project which would continue to allow them to remain on public display so through my own labor because this is a lot of work because i've been doing it for four, uh, three years now um through my own labor and through um my facilitation skills my admin skills um I am negotiating with different arts venues every year to find four new homes for the signs so that they can continue to, to remain on public display. So I guess I'm interested in like, what they do when they're on public display um, in comparison to what they would do if they were sat in my studio, like quite a lot of old artworks are. Um, or if they, you know, I sold them and they became commodities and they were in some private collection somewhere. Like, so... For me, when they're in public display, they're still signs, they're not artworks. And this is the artwork, it's this bigger structure. So this is where they all are in, in 2014. And then this little website just sort of chronicles all of the different locations that they've been in. And the process of like negotiating with the venues is really interesting as well, because if I... to because if I get them to agree to put a big beacon outside the front of their venue that says climate change on it, then they're almost... they're gonna, It's like a sort of guilt exchange, in a way, or like a responsibility exchange. It's like, I pass on the burn to them, and then maybe they actually have to do something in their programme that sort of aims to sort of address those issues or start to look at their own procedures and think, well, how can we um, behave in a more sustainable way? So I'm kind of leaving a sort of trail of a lot of um, guilt-ridden arts organisations <laughs> along the way. Um, but I'm also like, really interested in like, how that process of negotiation happens because in the UK it's quite rare... Because I'm going to big high-profile venues as well and they don't normally listen to artists who just come completely unsolicited and say, take this artwork. But because it, I'm kind of framing it in this different way... Um, I'm getting quite big organisations to take it seriously. Um, and that's quite interesting. And I'm also interested, there's no like um, financial exchange. So I'm actually, you know, I'm doing this all for free. So they're actually seeing that as a good opportunity to get some additional thing for their programme without having to pay anyone. And like, but if they do agree to it, then I start to say, oh, well, I could come and do a talk or something <laughs> like that. And, like, you can pay me for that. And, like, so there's all of these weird kind of negotiations going on behind the scenes, which I really like. But at the same time, this whole activity is a kind of big promotional tool for me as well. Like, uh, and I'm using climate change or this big, um, this, this big issue as a way of getting my work or my name into all of these different organisations around the UK. So I'm interested in how other artists might start to look at that and get annoyed, but I'm also interested in how um, they might 
get annoyed by seeing the same fucking artworks everywhere they go. So, like, in relation to this idea of, like, how you continue to keep something interesting if it goes on forever, you know, like, how can you... Um, you know, I'm not innovating, I'm just keeping the same thing going. Like, and, and how can I, as an individual, keep go- committed to that process? You know, how long can I keep going with this? Like, can I keep going 20 years? You know, at what point am I going to, like melt down and go, I just can't be fucked to do that anymore. It's, like, really <laughs> annoying. And at what point is the audience going to rebel and say, I just don't want to see those <laughs> signs anymore. Like, can you put those signs in the bin, for God's sake? So, yeah, like, I think with, with lots of these... Um, lots of these projects, like with this one and with, with, the, with the department as well, there's lots of different levels of maintaining them that I'm really interested in. But... Um, yeah, so I think I'll uh, probably leave it at that. Maybe questions? Questions. I would love to have some questions, if there are any. That is a good question. Um, I think it was because, like, when I was... Um, uh, doing my masters, which is what a lot of this kind of thinking came from, um, and why I moved to Scotland actually in two thousand and eight, I was really pissed off with the art world's sort of lack of response to climate change. I wrote an essay, and we had a big exhibition in at the Tate, um, curated by. Um, Nicola Borio, who wrote Relational Aesthetics, and it was called Alter Modernism. And what he wanted to do, because he's quite a kind of arrogant person, was to to define this new like movement, you know, like or not even movement. It's like we've done uh, modernism, we've done postmodernism, and now we've got alter modernism. And I'm Nicola Borio, and I'm defining what it is. Right? It's <laughs> basically what he did. And then he came and curated all these artworks that he thought represented um, alter modernism. So I wrote this. That was 2009, I think. Like it was all kind of in the run up to the big Copenhagen climate summit, and I was watching that um, and watching all of the discussions that were going around at that time. And, and thinking, like, this is just a d- different planet, you know, like, why is... And, and Nicola Borio's manifesto was all about, we live in a network world, we've got to fly all around the world, we're so cool, like, um, us, like, international jet-setting artists, and it's just like, what are you going on about, man? Like, we need to be doing kind of the opposite of that, like... <laughs> we, and, and so I wrote this text called... Um, Alter Modernism, The Age of Stupid. And it was based on this film called The Age of Stupid. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Has anybody heard of it? Yeah. I recommend watching it because it's, um, it's, it's a documentary, a sort of mockumentary, and it's <clears throat> set in the future. And there's only one human being alive. And he lives in this tower at the top of the World Archive. And his job is to kind of keep all of the cultural production ever produced by humanity safe 
But he, so he's got a completely absurd task of like cataloguing just everything, every film, every music, every artwork, everything. It's all in the World Archive. And, uh, but of course it's absurd because all of this stuff is meaningless without human beings to interpret it and understand it and appreciate it. But yet he's trying to keep it safe. So like the ultra modernism is, uh, sorry, the age of stupid is set at that time in the future and saying, um, and then looking back at the age of stupid, which is now, and looking back, and it like does an interview with like the head of EasyJet, or like and like how he's talking about like expanding the business and like like branching out. To, and there's a, this guy who's trying to like do short haul flights in India and copy like the 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 model of um, EasyJet in Europe and like expanding, 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 and all these big. And it's just like saying, well, this is the age of stupid. So I was just bringing the two things together and saying like, well, Nicola Borio is one of these idiots and um so so like i i think it was particularly and i wanted to target the arts organizations and i want to say look there's going to be no point carrying on making artworks if there aren't any human beings left to appreciate them like we need to join up the dots here and say well actually it's probably just as sensible to preserve like a habitable climate so that human beings can continue to exist and appreciate the artworks in the future. Um, but actually, I'll just show you a project. This I wasn't planning to show this, but it kind of seems because it's a new, it's a really new thing that I'm working on. I have been working on while I was procrastinating actually on Tuesday. Because um, this is what I'm doing next year at Goma. <clears throat> which is like a really big gallery in the middle of Glasgow. It's so run by the council. Um, that's what it looks like inside. Um, and it's in this old kind of like financial exchange building. It's in a place called Exchange Chair, but, uh, Square, but it's been a gallery for um, about 10 years, I think. Um, and I got involved in I'm allowed to do this because they took one of the signs so that was kind of like a foot in the door for me and then I was like well I actually want to do this project next year can you let me and what I'm doing is using this space you can't see it quite as well as I can see it on my screen which is a shame because it's um it's it's a really ah actually let me just get a picture up of that one here um Yeah, here we are. This is what it looks like. So, um, I'm going to invite like up to a hundred people to come and camp out in here overnight. So to create like a just a sort of pop up like refugee camp like within this like grandiose space, because I guess I'm really interested in like how. Um, we might have to reimagine or reuse these big like municipal galleries in the future um, if there isn't any funding for art anymore or if there isn't any art being made. <laughs> so it's kind of post-apocalyptic vision that I'm just trying want to create in this really grand space. Um, and but also it's 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 going to be about the experience of people being in the space as well so it's about it's going to be about you know how you kind of negotiate a temporary community as well overnight 
um, but specifically within that context. So, yeah, I think that's why I kind of um, continue to work in, in, in the art world, I suppose, as a sort of activist in, in that respect, is, 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 is trying to get galleries to address some of these things. Any other questions? I mean, we just had a lecture this morning on humour, ah. and humour does seem to play kind of a role in your work as well, or what? Definitely. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I guess I don't go out of my way to say, oh, what can I do that would be funny? I think, I think I just, that's how I express myself as a human, but also um, I guess it comes down to thinking what sort of artworks do I want to see, like, because I think as artists we make the sort of art, we know, nobody can answer the question what is art, but we kind of as artists we answer it through our artworks, we're like well this is the sort of art that I think should be art, so I guess I want to see things that engage me and I think humour is a really good way of doing that and it's also kind of an anti-elitist strategy for me as well because quite often people are turned off by something if they think it's a contemporary artwork and they're like well why is that an artwork like my child could have done that as they often say um but if they see it and they laugh it's a different sort of response and they get it on a different level so I think that's why it's kind of um, be, continued to be important. But I'm also thinking about it in terms of the very serious issues you're trying to tackle. Yeah. And the kind of light-hearted nature of it. You know, there's a... Yeah. I think there's also, um, in that, and this is a, another big paradox, there is kind of a, like a, a level of misanthropy in it as well like I mean it's all very well for me to go and look at these trajectories as we are oh, we're doomed um and this is I think the the real really interesting thing in having an environmental policy and trying to do your best and all the rest of it it's like actually I'm trying to preserve a species that are actually, you know, <laughs> quite awful. Yeah. <laughs> and do I really care? Like, do I really give a shit if humanity gets wiped out? Like, obviously, like, uh, nobody will be there to appreciate my great artworks, mm. which is, is c- kind of me- me- means that you kind of don't really have any sense of, like, meaning in your life or creating some sort of legacy in the future, but... Yeah, who cares? So, like, <laughs> so I think I I have to keep coming back to that as well, like, because otherwise, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be like one of those really like irritating, like preachy worthy artists, which I think I do teeter on the edge of, or perhaps I just am sorry, um, but like. Yeah, so that's why it's really important for me to acknowledge, like, maybe the other agenda. Like, so for that work where I'm moving the signs all around the country and I'm saying, well, actually, I'm just promoting myself. Like, I'm using climate change to promote myself. 
or like with my environmental policy, the same thing. Like, you know, I'm using it for to get to get brownie points, to get gigs. Like, so there's always another side to the story, but I'm keen to like just talk about both of them. Mm. Yeah. about this thing, uh, artwork and thinking like I wanted to use it to just map out all of these things you know in a really didactic way I want to say well we're like got far too many smartphones we're using far too much energy but we're coming to completely dependent on them we're getting fatter we're getting lonelier we're getting more isolated like, all of these things like just wanted to map it all out and I thought that's going to be so dark and so depressing <laughs> I know, I wear a fat suit. (laughs) (laughs) So that was just like a bit of a moment, like where I just thought, oh, actually that would be quite interesting to wear a fat suit. And originally I um, had intended to wear clothes over the fat suit, but it didn't quite look, um, I didn't look fat enough. And I just thought, oh, just not work. Because like I said, we only had one take to do it. So I just thought, actually, it looks better just like this. I just go on just like this. So, yeah, I mean, I was working on other... I'm, I'm going to show a piece next week um, called The Anti-Capitalist Aerobics. But that came out of a, um, a, a, a project I was working on about... Um, it's called The Anti-Capitalist Diet. And I started to go to, this is in 2013 as well, my dark year, but I started to go to Weight Watchers, um, initially as research, (laughs) Um, but like, I was really interested in the support group, because as well as self-help, you know, I think the support group and the consciousness raising group and that format like that traces back to women's liberation and people coming together to discuss their problems you know that's at the core of Weight Watchers it's about getting together being weighed with each other talking about difficult um, uh, times that you've had where you've eaten something that you shouldn't or had a binge or whatever like it's being co-opted by a multi- national corporation that is profiting from people's anxieties um, and actually like all of the products that you get for, at Weight Watchers, I don't know if anybody's ever been does it exist here? Mm-hmm. yeah not so, as much I think it's not that present here is it? As in, in the UK it's fairly I know it's in Sweden yeah. I don't know but it exists it exists yeah. Yeah. 
So, but, but you go and then like this whole like table of products, Weight Watchers products, and you think, people think, well, I don't because I'm a cheapskate and I'm wised up to these tricks, but you think the only way I'm going to lose weight is if I eat these products, like, like I'm going to have to buy all of these Weight Watchers, but you know, it's awful the way that this like really brilliant format has been co-opted, so... The, the, the anti-capitalist diet, what I was hoping to do was um, just exactly like in the personal is political um, text is, is about saying, well, actually, you know, the obesity epidemic, the very fact that it's an epidemic or the fact that it's being reproduced in, 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 in millions of individuals shows that it's not an individual problem. It's the, the, the problem is the system that is, is encouraging us to consume more than we need to. Um, so the the anti-capitalist diet, I wanted to sort of get together a group of people who come together because they wanted to lose weight, but actually left realising that they had a com common enemy and that they were kind of mobilised to try to do something about it. Um, and that actually, if you had a group of like overweight people who are actually on a mission, that would be some force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. Like... If they showed up, like, s storming the barricades at, I don't know where, it, 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 would be, it would be awesome. So, yeah, like, I, I think all of those things I was researching at the same time, is, and that's why the fat suit popped into my head um, at that moment and just seemed to make sense. But I do say in the script that you know, you wouldn't see a fat person on the television. Like, there'll be loads of fat people, but none of them will be on the television, so it will be as though they, they don't actually exist. Um, but, it, yeah, I, I have been uh, criticised um, for it as well. For the pantsuit? Yeah, um, but, like... Yeah, because, I mean, I... I don't have an eating disorder, but food has obviously been like a massive influence in my life. Like from going back to doing that eating Eat Twenty Two project, like and actually that fucked my head up as well. Like that made me, and maybe that that made me have a very unhealthy relationship to food. So like some of these products projects that I've done have kind of have affected me. So I kind of think I can speak about these things because I have suffered in the same way. Like, I went to it, which I actually ended up losing a stone. You know, I got really into it, like... <laughs> and, like... And then, of course, I put all the weight straight back on as soon as I left, like you do, like you do when you have a crash diet. So, like... Yeah, like, I am... I'm victim of all of these these pressures from, from consumerist society as well. So I feel like, well, why can't I speak about them and take the piss out of them as well? <laughs> yes. Do you know? Um, I was just wondering, Ellie, because you you you've done like we see like how thorough you are in terms of like all this like the earlier work you've shown in terms of all this data you've gathered and monitoring and and so I was just wondering if you could extrapolate on this last thing you said about that how you are aware of the fact that you use climate change. Like, if you're aware of the fact that you use this to also do self-promotion, in a way, yeah. like, and how you kind of work around that. And my reason for asking is, like, if you go to, like, documentary film 
four or more pitches. Yeah. It's like, whoa, like the world is a horrible place. Like you sit through like an hour of these pitches and it's like, yeah, I want to make my film about, you know, female genocide in Uganda. And yeah, give me money because I want to make film about, you know, and, and so it, it's all, it starts to become perverse a bit yeah. because it's this idea of like, I want, I want to do good yeah. However, I'm doing it through film, and so at certain points, this chicken egg thing in a way, yeah. or or how do we, if you if there were then no tragedies, or if the world did become just a little bit better, like you want your film to raise awareness towards, yeah. then then you'll be out of a job, or you know, like <laughs> so that's my background for asking. Yeah. Um, it's like how do you reflect upon yeah. that, or because I'm sure you must. That is really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think. Hmm, what's the answer for that? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, making just saying the unsayable, like saying, "Oh, my Facebook page is called Blatant Self Promotion." Mm. Like, don't expect anything else. Like, and actually, that's what everybody's doing on the Facebook pages, but they're they're not they're not acknowledging it. So, mm. like. I think just being acknowledging and being honest about everything, um, all of the different levels, and like, I think that filmmaker, you know, if a filmmaker stood up and pitched an idea about like, I actually really want to see this film um, that I read about with Jake Gyllenhaal, where he's like a, he's like a journalist. It just came out. I can't remember what it's called, um, but he goes and like photographs. No, it's it's Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, That's it. Have you seen it? Yeah, but he goes and he he photographs like uh, car car um, crashes, but then like I guess it's like you go out. It's I guess it does link into some of the things I'm interested in about how you then learn to play the system. Like you start off by you know oh, I want to just photograph car crashes. But then once you realise one of the unintended consequences is that you become really successful and everybody wants your photographs, that you start to manipulate that and go, well, actually, I'm going to... I don't know what he ends up doing, but maybe, like, making car crashes happen in order to get the photos. Like, I don't know what he ends up doing, but I want to see the film. Like, so there is that as well. But then I think also, this is a big thing that I'm always thinking about, is resisting the desire to expand mm. and as an artist like your career trajectory like there's a certain point where you know if you follow th go through the motions you may get a commercial gallery and you may then start jetting off to different um biennales around the world and you have a team of people promoting you and people like storing your works and all the rest of it and like and, and, and at that point, it becomes unsustainable because at that point, you become a production line where you're just producing commodities for a gallery to sell. And so, and that's why I always come, I think, come back to, like, why am I actually doing this? And, and, and I've written that, that essay, actually, that I gave you <laughs> is, like, totally about this because it's about saying, well, actually, the process of thinking 
And the process of being locked in a little room and reading and thinking is the thing that, you know, makes me joyful and gives my life meaning and enables me to process all of these, like, injustices and absurdities that I see in the world. So that's what I want, really want to hold on to. And I don't want to get trapped in a system that's going to take away my time to the degree where I never get to do that anymore. Like, um, so I think that's, that's really important, is resisting this desire to expand and grow and, 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 and to realise, yeah, keep it real. That's my motto. <laughs> 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 I've got lots of mottos actually, lots that are much better than that. <laughs> Sorry to end on that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, we better call it a day. So I'll see you all next week, yeah? Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Oh shit, no. I forgot, can I just do a bit of promotion? Can I just do a bit of promotion for the film club? Because I am start. Uh, sorry, I, I just need to do this because... Some of you know Adam Curtis, do you? Yes. Yeah, so I, he's one of my favourite filmmakers and a lot of the ideas and things that I've kind of incorporated into my work have come from watching his documentaries. So, like, not wanting to do anything by halves, I thought I wanted to do a, com- a total binge of Adam Curtis when I came here and I had the time to do it. So I am running this film club and the first screening is actually meant to be this evening. And I know there's an exhibition happening in the project space at five. Is the person who's having the exhibition here? No. 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 She's there. Oh, she's there setting up. So this is meant to start at six. And this, the, the Century of the Self, we've probably... A lot of you have seen. It's like a classic. I've seen it about four times. So I'm really just showing that as kind of an introduction to stuff. But it is a brilliant um, kind of alternative perspective on on how consumer society developed. And then they continue during my stay. There's one each week. So please look at the posters out there. And and, and also... um, Check out the Facebook event for the <laughs> for the Department of Business Innovation and Skills. This one, not in the. In spite of the fact that you're not on your Facebook yourself. Well, I, but you can interact with me th- as a, as an artist. Mm. You can't interact with me as a human. No, but in order to follow your <laughs> your event, you have to be on Facebook. Yeah, you do. Sorry, or you can just <laughs> knock on the door. Just <laughs> yeah. knock on the door, or just look at the notice board. So, if anybody wants to. Uh, Watch Century of the Self, which I highly recommend. It will blow your mind. Um, come along at six o'clock in here. And how does it work with the splitting up of the film? Oh, so we're going to watch two today and two tomorrow. So it's going to be a bit of a binge, an Adam Curtis binge. But I'm, 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 I'm all about binges, you see. And the, the, this one, the Mayfair set, it, and I picked the ones that kind of link to the themes of business innovation and skills. So... The Mayfair set's all about um, how this really small group of individuals um, influenced uh, Thatcher's government, but, you know, in turn influenced the whole neoliberal project. Um, And it was just all centering around this very small group of powerful, wealthy people um, in London. Um, Pandora's Box is all six parts, and it's all about um, technology (coughs) and how science and how scientific innovation has 
has um, shaped politics and vice versa. That's six parts. Um, and that's the week that I'm doing my workshop. So there will be the people, but it's open to everybody. But you can meet the people who are coming from the, from the Kuno network to come and do the workshop. And then the final one is the trap, which some of you may have seen. It's a recent one. And that's that, um, kind of really brilliant. Lots of stuff to do with mental health and how like self-tracking and, and target target-driven culture kind of affects affects our mental health and affects the way that we behave. Um, so, yeah, they're all there. And if you binge on all of these with me, um, yeah, it'll blow your mind. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. And now you have, you have two applause. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening.